As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to Dose of Leadership. So happy you're tuning in. Great guest today. My good friend Earl Brion is on the show. And a pleasure and honor to have him on. Earl has been a um, connection of mine, I don't know, gosh, maybe four or five years. And we've known each other primarily because we were both Marines. He's a former active duty Marine with 25 years of experience as a leader, as a manager. He's coached and mentored hundreds from the military, civilian, federal service, and private sectors. And I really enjoy his philosophy again, obviously. I've learned, when I got away from the Marine Corps, I learned a lot about what the Marine Corps taught me about life and leadership. Earl, the same thing. Even though when he left the Marine Corps, he was ready to get out. He was kind of burned out, had a jaded view of the Marine Corps. But as he got out, again, those same kind of experiences and uh, those lessons that he kind of took for granted became crystal clear. He'll talk about it in this interview. I love his approach. He's just started a brand new podcast the Burden of Command. I love that title. And um, if you're a listener of this show, I encourage you to go check out Earl's podcast and your favorite podcast app, whatever it is. If it's Apple Podcasts, go subscribe, rate, and review The Burden of Command. If it's on Stitcher, same thing. And go check out his show. He's just starting out. Let's give him all the support that he needs. His heart and his mind is in the right place. He definitely understands it. The concept of leadership. He's a great instructor. He's a great teacher. We talk about some of his 11 shields or what he calls of leadership behavior in this show. Um, and you can see them in the post from you're always on display, introspection, improvement, play your team strengths, define success. We really deep dive almost all of these. And it's a, it's a long conversation. It's about an hour. I could almost break this up into two episodes, but take your time with this and come back to it. Uh, there's a lot of nuggets in here. And anytime I talk with a fellow Marine, someone that understands it, I guarantee you it's a, a, an episode worth listening. Grab a pen and paper and take some notes. Earl definitely gets it. And it was so fun to have him on the show. Hey, I want to talk about my sponsor for this episode. It's RSM Marketing. Are you feeling overwhelmed by the expanding marketing tactics? I know I am. You might consider an outsourced marketing department. It takes it all off your plate. That's what RSM does. They employ dozens of specialists and experienced marketing directors, and they act as your outsourced marketing department. They work with companies 
from all ranges, from small startups to market leaders with thousands of employees. It doesn't matter what size of your business is, RSM can help you. Because look, the complexity of marketing is growing exponentially. And look, you don't want to hire, you probably can't afford and manage a large team of marketing professionals. Outsourcing with RSM allows you to gain full access to a team of specialists with a flat monthly subscription rate. That's what's so beautiful about it. And oftentimes, it's as low as the cost as a single marketing full-time employee. If you want to learn more, go schedule a meeting with my friend Mike Schneider, the managing partner at RSM Marketing, directly, and he'll get you all the information that you need. I tell you what, you can go to the special link. Go to rsmconnect.com slash dose of leadership. That's rsmconnect.com slash dose of leadership, and it'll take you right to a special link, and dose of leadership listeners can get 5,000 in additional outsourced marketing department services. It's a great deal. These guys are I got a great uh, business model. And I think you'll really appreciate working with them and having them helping you with all of your marketing needs. All right. Thanks for tuning in to the show. Now on with the conversation with my good friend Earl Brion here on Dose of Leadership. Earl, so excited to have you on Dose of Leadership. Welcome to the show, my friend. Ah, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. It's uh I'm a big fan of the show, so I'm honored to be a guest. Well, I've been a big fan, again, of watching the sidelines, watching you grow your business, watching you grow your leadership consulting speaking business, and finally having a podcast launch. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you very much. It's uh, uh, you know glad to have you as a, as a guest on there. That'll be coming out here pretty soon. So uh, it's been nice. It's It's been a nice path. And, uh, uh, you know, like I said, I've, I've really looked to you as kind of a uh, – a mentor down that road, even though we haven't had a formal arrangement, watching you grow the Dose of Leadership podcast has, has been eye-opening for me. So thanks for blazing the path. Well, thanks for the kind words. And again, you're doing it all, though, and I appreciate the intentionality and, and the hustle behind it. Um, you always impress me with how early you get up and, and, and start tackling those personal habits while I'm sitting there like a slug, you know, sitting there envying your um, kind of discipline of getting up regularly so early. So uh, thank you for kind of pushing me and making me feel like a slug half the time. So. <laughs> no, not a problem. Everybody always gives me a hard time for that. And, and it's like, look, if I didn't get up at three thirty, four o'clock in the morning, I wouldn't have time in the day to get anything done. I, I always <laughs> joke. That's where I keep my spare time. So yeah, it's amazing how, if you can, if you can do it, three thirty's insane. But um, if you, if I can get up at five, it's amazing why I didn't get done between five and seven o'clock. It's amazing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just, I mean, cause nobody else does it. Right. right? I mean, and, and, you know, I have friends who stay up until one, two, three o'clock in the morning and they say the same thing. I'm like, okay, fine. You're just, we're on the same clock, just a few hours different. Yeah. But I think, I think you're more productive if you're coming up from the, if you're starting fresh as opposed to the end, you know, I, yeah. I think anyway. Well, for me, yeah, that, that's for me. If, once I get past like, you know, say nine, 10 o'clock at night, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm on autopilot. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, I can't believe you're staying up till nine or 10 and getting up at three, three 30. That's it's, crazy. It, it depends on the day. Like to be completely honest, uh, I try to get in bed at eight, eight 30, somewhere in that neighborhood. Cause I do get up so early. Yeah. But you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big Nashville predators fan and hockey seasons is coming up. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of late nights. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the the stuff that we're passionate about leadership. Obviously you've got the leadership bug. Um, I got it. Uh, and I think probably where it probably laid its roots was our, that the thing we share in common was our spending time in the Marine Corps. I didn't realize how much the Marine Corps meant to me until I got out because when I was in it, 
I'm surrounded by the same group of knuckleheads all the time and you take it for granted <laughs> about that culture. But when you get away from it, that's when I started really realizing how much uh, it taught me. Did the same thing happen to you? Well, you know, so my story is a little bit different than, than most Marines. Like when I got out, uh, full disclosure, I hated the Marine Corps. Right. Um, you know, I, well, I, so I, I had, uh, I was one of the few uh, in the late nineties that took the anthrax shots and, and had uh, an adverse reaction. Yeah. And my, my career sort of got yanked out from underneath me. That's the way I, I, I saw it at the time. And uh, yeah, I hated it because I, I wanted to be a 20 year Marine. I mean, I, I went in with that idea and, and the, the Marine Corps through those policies took it away. Yeah. So, so when I first got out, I, I didn't want anything to do with the Marines. I couldn't get far enough away. I sold my dress blues, which I re- kind of regret. Uh, I ditched a lot of my memorabilia uh, that I'd collected through the years. I just, I was done. I was mad. Then, <laughs> then I get out into uh, the, the federal civilian service. And uh, man, I came running back to my Marine Corps love real quick. Yeah. Uh, because of, you know, really the leadership piece. And I, I started really going back to my Marine Corps roots of leadership because all of a sudden I'm surrounded by a bunch of people, uh, a bunch of scientists uh, who had a lot of control over me, uh, but had zero leadership skills. And I'm sitting here thinking like, man, how in the world am I going to survive in this environment and I had to really go back to, to some of those basic Marine Corps leadership principles. And, and I had to start, I had to start helping create an environment that I could thrive in. Yeah. And, and that's where my, my coaching and, and mentoring love really came from was working with these supremely brilliant people, but they had zero personal skills and helping them build some personal skills. So and again, it was purely selfish. I wanted to build a place where I could survive and thrive. It's an interesting uh, path. I, I I do relate with it because I think even all of us, when we got out, it wasn't like I was. I had ten years where I was like, "Man, I love this place. I hate to see it go." I was ready to go too because mm-hmm. I thought the grass was greener on the other side, you know. And and all my buddies that were ahead of me were in the airlines, and they said, "Come on in. The water's great." <laughs> And and when you're around, it's like what I said. You know, you know, it, it, a marine isn't happy unless he's bitching type thing. What is that? What's the old adage? Right? There was a yeah. lot of bitching going on about the Marine Corps when I got yeah. out, and my, because it's fun to bitch, right? And, right. And but again, it's that lack of perspective that I didn't hate the Marine Corps. I was ready to get out because I thought, oh man, this this lifestyle and the hours I'm gone all the time and this and that and yada yada. Yeah, it's not any better on the outside. In fact, I think it's that, that again. I didn't get that perspective until I was away. Much like you, mine wasn't quite quite as drastic, and I wasn't as negative. I didn't want to run away from the Marine Corps. I was still proud I was in the Marine Corps, but I was ready to be done with it. But then yeah. when I I started working like you, like holy cow, they are messed up. You know, <laughs> well, yeah. And, it, and, even if you have a bad experience, I tell everybody in the Marine Corps you take away some things and that's what I'm hearing you say that you did. You took away some things that are helping you today. Oh, a hundred percent. And you know, and, and that's the thing is like, you know, I, I, 
you know, I, I'm not one of those that's going to, and, and I'm, I know you don't either, but I, I'm not going to romanticize Marine Corps as being like this bastion of leadership development because, I mean, let's be honest, we, we all worked with, uh, you know, manager leadership divide was in the Marine Corps just as much. Some oh, people yeah. relied on the weight in their collar more than their interpersonal skills. Yeah. And, and the other thing, too, that people don't realize that's different than the corporate arena is like you get it in short little bursts. It's like you go somewhere. Uh, that leadership rotation is constant. It mm-hmm. speaks to the unique challenge that you don't see in the corporate arena, uh, but it also speaks to the, the the good and the bad. The good is it's amazing that the Marine Corps can be so consistent with such high turnover. You know, a CEO yeah. or a squadron commander or a commanding officer is only there for a couple of years, right? You know, and then he's gone. He or she is gone, and the new, and, and the new knucklehead comes in, right? Well, right. And I think that speaks to the one thing that, that I do believe that the Marine Corps and, and the other branches do a good job as well. I don't want to just I don't want to leave them out to hang. But, you know, I can speak to the Marine Corps because I'm a Marine uh, is is that consistent yeah. professional development through a career. It, it's up to you to screw it up. Uh, I mean, it's it's kind of a joke around like like leadership in a lot of ways is cookbook type stuff. You know, we, we know the things that work because they've worked for thousands of years since humans started building tribes. But what makes it different is just like a cookbook, you know, I can pick up a cookbook and follow a recipe and my shit sucks. <laughs> but, you know, somebody else can follow the same recipe and it's one of the most amazing meals you've ever had in your life. Uh, it's the same thing. It's that personal touch and, and, and how you interpret that recipe, if you will, that makes a difference. That's a great analogy, and you're absolutely right. I mean, they, they are principles that weren't invented. I am fully agree. They just exist, right? I don't know. Right. They just are because we're dealing with human beings. You're right. And you can try to put it in a checklist, a format. The best it's going to do is just tell you, hey, this is the right way to do it. You follow these principles. But to actually do it takes a, a human side of it that's unique to every single one of us. And every situation is different too, right? And right. um, you can't always be, um, you know, some, and you got to wear all the hats and regardless of what your personality is, you may be an introvert like me, or you may be a, a type A extrovert. Um, I have to sometimes be an extrovert to get certain things done with certain individuals. Right. And well, even yeah. though I'm not comfortable in that role, I have to, I have to do it every now and then. Well, yeah. And, and again, that goes back to, uh, you know, we're talking about him now, what, almost a hundred and some odd years later, Von Clausewitz. Yeah. Right. He, he, he talks completely in there about how to, how important it is to know your, your officers and how to, how to, and he says this, I believe in a positive way, how to manipulate that information to get what you need them to do done. Yeah. I yeah. love it. You and, you and I are both the fans. I mean, I, I was introduced to Stephen Pressfield, through the Marine Corps. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, he's written a lot of historical fiction, Gates of Fire. I know a lot of, of you reference that a lot in your material. We've talked about that before. I'm a huge fan of that book. I've used elements of that that book um, and the Spartan lifestyle in some of my teaching training and my beliefs. But I like Stephen Pressfield's written a lot of other stuff, too. I think he, he wrote The Legend of Bagger Vance, right? So a lot of people don't even yeah. know that. And then, But The War of Art which yes. is, uh, I'm a huge fan of. 
and I reference it all the time and to all my coaching clients. But so tell me how your love for Stephen Pressfield and particularly Gates of Fire impacted you and, and why why you were so drawn to that story, the Spartans, which I see a lot of your stuff, your leadership stuff is referencing that kind of Spartan lifestyle. Talk to me about that. Well, so again, it was it was kind of a, a, a rediscovery, if you will, because, yeah, I, I had been turned on to Gates of Fire uh, in the Marines and, and read it. And uh, when my, my business partner uh, at the leadership phalanx, what eventually became the leadership phalanx, when we were trying to figure out what we wanted to, to name our business, we, we threw around all kinds of stuff, right? But we, we were kind of dancing around it. And, uh, you know, we, we tried Vanguard and Cutting Edge and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And all this stuff, looking back on it, man, I'm glad we didn't go with. But Stephen Pressfield just, like, popped back, back into my head. And, and I remember uh, he, he, there's a scene in the book where, um, so if people haven't read it, it's kind of a historical fiction about the Battle of Thermopylae. It's nowhere near as fictionalized as the movie 300 yeah, was. Right. <laughs> uh, but so it's it's kind of close, but he had to fill in some gaps. And, and his narrator is a gentleman named Zeanes, and he's telling the Spartan story to uh, Xerxes and and some of his folks. But there's a thing towards the end, and, and Zeanes is making this distinction between uh, Leonidas and Xerxes. And here's what he says, and I keep this at hand so I can reference it off often. So the king does not abide within his tent while his men bleed and die upon the field. A king does not dine while his men go hungry nor sleep when they stand at watch upon the wall. A king does not command his men's loyalty through fear nor purchase it with gold. He earns their love by the sweat of his own back and the pains he endures for their sake. That which comprises the harshest burden a king lifts first and sets down last. A king does not require service of those he leads, but provides it to them. A king does not expend his substance to enslave men, but by his conduct and example makes them free. And as that popped back into my head, I got to thinking about how we wanted to build our, our, our core leadership development training. And, and it relied heavily on, the Marine Corps principles and, and, you know, the army teaches the same, my, my partner's an army guy. And we had already agreed that we wanted to kind of use those 11 leadership principles, but we needed to change them up a little bit uh, to make them a little bit more palatable by the civilian world. Uh, Cause sometimes as soon as you start talking military leadership, you get people to turn off. Oh yeah. And so we got to thinking, how can we do that? But it's something that's still going to be in that ballpark, but it's going to be more palatable. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but it's, it, you, I'm from Tennessee. We have a lot of weird sayings, but you know, you can't swing a dead cat around here anymore without running into something that is like Spartan related. Uh, you know, whether it's Spartan races, whether it's, you know, people with the movie 300, you see Molan Leib everywhere and half the people who have it don't even know what it means. You know, and that, that was kind of where we came with the phalanx because that was the, the phalanx was the at the core of what Spartans did. And I've got somebody mowing right now outside, so that's great. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that phalanx, that, that interlocking shields, and, and we got to think about these principles, right? And it's the same thing. If you have all 11 of these shields working together, you can build that wall 
of leadership to get behind and find success. And, and you know, when you look at at that story of Thermopylae, you know, you had somewhere in the neighborhood of four to five thousand uh, Greeks total standing up against two to three hundred thousand Persians. And it was that strength of the phalanx that that made that such a memorable story. And so that's what we wanted to build it around. Uh, that's why we call ourselves the leadership phalanx. We, we, we've identified these 11 shields that tie very closely into those principles. And sure, you can do one or two of these things and you'll be better. But if you do all 11 together, if you lock those shields in, that's where the big success comes from. I love it. Yeah, I love the 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 quote the section you were reading there. There was a part, and I was trying. I left my, I bookmarked this when I was on my flight this weekend, and it was my iPad. And unfortunately, I left it in my flight bag, so I don't have it in my room. And I was trying to pull up, I, I was pulling up Gates of Fire in my iPhone as we're talking here, and I was trying to find. There's a a section there where they talk about. It's in the early part of the book, and he's talking about you know, what the leader. Uh, what what a leader is, and I'm paraphrasing, but the paragraph basically says, you know, it's not about uh, the one that, um, you know, achieves these great kind of out in the front, achieving the battles. It's the one of the of the guy that's standing on the sideline and he's teaching and he's you know and he's he's teaching and he's sacrificing and he's has this kind of mentor relationship. So others, you know, and watching others prosper and grow, I'm paraphrasing what that paragraph said, but it was so powerful. That book has so many leadership nuggets. Well, it, it, it does. And then, you know, what you're talking about there is, you know, I think a lot of people miss there's, there's this great juxtaposition through the book of, of Leonidas and Xerxes, right? Because yeah. they talk about Xerxes always sitting on the throne on top of the hill, watching the battle. And whenever they talk about Leonidas, he's down in front with them. Yeah, he, he's covered in blood and guts and all these things. He's he's there, and you know everybody's looking to him. Uh, you know, and, and there's there's an even better story early on, and it's, this kind of ties into what you were saying. It's like when they first arrive at the gates and, and they're building the wall. And, and he asks his captains, where should, where should we reinforce the wall? And they talk, right? They're, they're talking, they're talking, and it evolves uh, into some great conversation. And then it quickly devolves into arguing, right? Because at some point, egos take over and everybody wants to be the one that's right. And, and Leonidas goes over and he, he picks up a rock and he walks out and he sets it down. And then, then people kind of like, what's going on? And then he walks back over the pile and picks up another rock and sets it down. And finally it dawns on him. And one of the captains says, are we going to let our King build this wall all by himself? And then they just start building the wall. (laughs) Right. You know, he didn't say anything. He didn't intervene. It wasn't his idea necessarily that, that he, it wasn't his will that he imposed as King. He listened, got the information he needed. Then he started acting. I love that. I know ex- exactly what you're talking about. It's a great example. And there's another one that I just thought of it brings to mind. I talked about this a few years ago when that movie Lone Survivor came out. And mm. I can't remember who I had on my show. Was one, I've had four Navy SEALs on my show, and it was one of them. I can't remember which one I was talking to. But it's irrelevant. But we, we talked about it because the movie had just come out. And there's a great scene in there. I'm assuming you've seen Lone Survivor. Oh, yeah. There's a scene in there you know, kind of the critical point when the movie turns, it's the the turning point where, you know, the, their mission is compromised. The four of them go in there and they're supposed to, I don't know, assassinate some guy right in the camp. And so they're at this kind of 
on the hill, high level point, and they run into the old man, the teenager, and the young boy, and the mm-hmm. goats, right? Right. And they're like, oh, crap, what do we do now? And there's one officer and there's three enlisted there. And they start talking about what are we going to do? And an argument ensues, right? And it's about a 15-minute scene. And they're like, one guy wants to schwack him, right? Yep. And uh, the main character, Mark Wahlberg's character, is like, are you kidding me? This is going to be on CNN. We're talking Leavenworth. And and he goes, all I care about you. And anyway, they, they argue, right? And it gets pretty heated. And the officer's just kind of standing back. And finally, after about 10 minutes of this argument, he just walks in and says, okay, this is what we're going to do. And to yep. your point, right? And he, and he goes, we're going to let him go. We're going to go up on the hill, set up the radio. The mission's scrubbed. And it's over. And this is what we're going to do. And then everybody says, roger that. And then no one talks about it again. That, yep. to me, that subtlety, I don't know if, if, if it escapes a lot of people, but the fact that they just stopped arguing and said, this is what we're going to do. And the fact that it was a decision that ultimately led to three of their deaths no one complained about that decision, even though they were right that it went downhill after that. Oh yeah. No, I mean, uh, so Marcus Luttrell to this day loves Lieutenant Michael Murphy. I mean, that, like, like if you ever hear Marcus Luttrell talk about Mike Murphy, the, the officer that who made, made the that decision, decision yeah. uh, he, he, you know, it's nothing but the utmost respect. And, and there was never a, you know, this bastard made a bad decision. He got everybody killed. It was his job to make the decision. And yeah. I, I talk about that scene a lot because people kind of, you know, they have this vision of military leadership as being all yelling and screaming and you're going to do what I tell you to do. And they don't believe that that scene went down the way it did. And I, I have every confidence that it did. Yeah. Because you know, there was, I mean, it was a big decision to make. Um, and it, yeah, it's a powerful scene. Well, and it goes to, it speaks again, it speaks to the, and, and I'm sure you've dealt with this too. I mean, people have perceived that the Marine Corps was that it was like, these are the orders and you blindly follow them that. And my experience was, it was more like that. Now that was an extreme example, but I was told early on that it's not my right to challenge. It's my obligation. And I get that from flying planes too. It's like when we're up there in the cockpit, I will always challenge the captain if, yeah. you know, because it's my butt on the line too no matter what his personality, he or she's personality is like, she could be grumpy. He could, he could hate me. I don't care. I still am not going to let he or she land with a gear up. Right. Yeah. I mean, and like you said, responsibility and, and it was, yeah. I mean, and, and that was exactly it. It was their responsibility to voice these concerns. So Mike Murphy had all of the information that he possibly could to make the best decision. You know, because going back to that scene and, and even in the cockpit, right? I mean, if, if you see something wrong and you don't say something, so the gear stuck down and, and the pilot, uh, the captain misses it, that's on you. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, worst case scenario, you bring it up and the captain says, you know, shut up and sit down. I'm the captain. You right. did your part. Right. Right. So, that's, well, that's the other part, too, that that's critical to that. When you look at organizations is is it's not your right. And when I've had people say, when it's not your right to challenge your obligation, you get a shot, right? Mm -hmm. And behind the scenes, there could be yelling, there could be cussing, there could be passionate, you know, disagreement. When the decision's made, as long as that decision is not unethical, immoral, or illegal, you're obligated to carry it out like it's your own. 
mm-hmm. even if you disagree with it. That is so powerful, and that is something I think I, I think is a game changer in organizations' culture. If you can adopt that, um, it, it can really swing the needle on your on your leadership culture and your results. If you can get people to to passionately disagree, argue it out, hash it out. Don't worry about the the conflict. Healthy conflict is great. But once a decision is made, you carry it out like it's your own. A lot of organizations can't they can't carry that last part out, and that's where they miss the mark. Well, yeah, no, I think it was um, I believe it was Intel. They had the policy of uh, disagree but commit, and, and what like you just that. said was expected. Uh, you're in the boardroom getting ready to launch something. That's the time to disagree. And there were stories of people like literally throwing binders across the room at one another, going at each other's throat. But that was the place to do it. Right. It was much more egregious to leave the room and and say, well, this is what they decided. I have to go with it. I don't really agree with it. That was worse than like physical assault uh, in that environment, if you can believe it. And, and in a lot of ways it is, <laughs> you know, I mean, as, as crazy as that may sound, because as soon as you make that comment, I don't necessarily agree with this. You just undermined all buy-in from your team. Yeah, I, I think I don't think it's a. I, I think it's. It, it may seem hard to believe, but I think that is the the death. It can be the death of an organization. Um, for someone goes out and doesn't commit. Like I like that. Like you know, doesn't commit to the decisions that are made. Now, there's a whole concept of moral courage mm-hmm. that comes into play too. Right. Right. Where, okay, I still disagree. This is wrong. Right. Maybe it is unethical, illegal or immoral. But if it has, it better be one of those. You know what I mean? It better be one of those. It can't just be, I don't like this guy. I don't like his decision. He's still wrong. You know, you got to carry it out. It is so poisonous is if you undermine the decision that's made. You've just, it's like you said, it's egregious. That is the right word for it. <laughs> well, and, and, and you, you hit the nail on the head there, right? Is the, the, the immoral, unethical, and illegal. I mean, that, that's when you're, you have that higher obligation to not. Right. You know, we talk about the military and following orders, you know. Uh, that, that old saying about nobody ever went to Leavenworth for following orders. Well, no, that's not true. That's not at true all. at all. My lay is a perfect example. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, because, you know, I mean, you, you know what the difference is, like, as you said, you know what the difference is between I, I, I disagree on a principle level and I disagree because it is immoral, illegal or unethical. Yeah, that's your benchmark. Right. And yeah. that's and there's so much there that we could we could we could dive down. But I want to get back to your 11 shields there of okay. leadership behavior. Uh, I love what you said. I can see the, I can see elements there. I can see you're always on display, setting the, the kind of a setting example, introspection and improvement. That's interesting. That's self awareness. I believe all that too. Build relationships. Look out for your people. Got to take care of them. I agree with that 100. percent Be rational and decisive. Yeah, I, yeah, I like the ra- what's the rational side of that? Well, you know, so a lot of people mistake the word rash and rational, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, anybody can make a decision at a split second. You know, that, that's a rash decision. You can m- make a rational decision in a split second if you've taken the time to think through it. And when I go, uh, when I talk about that, when I kind of go back to the, the early days of NASA, and if you ever heard Gene Kranz talk about it, he said, every time w- when we would go through a mission, we 
we thought through all of these different scenarios of what could happen because we knew if it did happen, we wouldn't have that time. So when something went wrong, they were able to make these very rational, but very quick and decisive decisions and, and people executed. Um, you know, there's the, the infamous uh, story of, and I, his name just popped right on my head. Um, but there was a, 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 one of the missions almost got scrubbed because of this. I think it was like a 1201 alarm, if I remember right. Yeah, the 1201, the 1201 and 1202 alarms when they're getting ready to land on the, on the moon, yeah. Right. And, and there was one guy. One guy. That remembered. 24, that that he was the programmer, the 24-year-old programmer that, that Gene had to rely on, yeah. Exactly. And, and so because this had happened and they had already kind of went through this, in the moment where that decision needed to be made, you could have made a rash decision to scrub the mission that would have cost a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of uh, money wasted. But he was able to make the rational decision still just as quick because he took the time to know his job and, and, and be aware of things going on around him. So that's the difference between a rash decision and a rational decision. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that. I had Gene Krantz. He was one of my first guests on the show. In fact, he was the third one to commit to my show, which allowed me to. And so it was such a treat, Don. And we talked about that, that 1201-1202, and yeah. that he had no idea. Gene didn't know anything what this was. And you're right. There was one person, that one programmer in there, and he had yep. to fully commit and trust what he was saying. And, and the the programmer who knew what that was, because they've seen it before, is the only really person in that room that knew it. Mm-hmm. He had to have the courage and the confidence that this was okay, right? He Think yeah. of the pressure he was under, you know? And he was only like 25, I think, that guy that oh, yeah. was looking at that. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the other powerful thing about the shield, though, right, is, is when you can do that, you know, think about this for a second. You're, you're the, the follower in this scenario, and you see somebody make a, a rash decision that costs a lot of uh, whatever is being measured, whether it's lives, whether it's money. How likely are you to follow that person the next time they make a decision? Exactly. You see somebody make a rational decision the same way, and, and, and you understand that there's some thought behind it. That's somebody you want to follow. Now, the, the, the kind of obverse side of this, if you will, is that whole uh, uh, paralysis by analysis, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And so you're you're not being rational or decisive. Your team is kind of left uh, afloat because you can't make a decision. Period. Yeah. And so this one is really a lot about like having the foresight of of knowing your job, being decisive, being and displaying. You know, where you're always on display, displaying that you have control of the situation. I love it, and, and that's why I paused on that one because I think that really is the low hanging fruit, if I can use a cliche of of an organization can really start making an impact and start turning the corner. If they want to do something now and see some quasi immediate, immediate results, if you can get people to do what you, what you just said, um, which involves technical and tactical expertise at every level, but having the courage to make partial or make decisions with partial information. Right. And that's what the rash, I love that the rational piece. It's a, it's the whole smart risk thing. Right. Yeah. It's the yeah. reason why, you know, it, it, everything you do has an, an element of risk, but you want it to be smart risk. 
And that's what we're right. talking about. And that's where that being rational gets you to that point. Love it. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So looking at the other ones here, be a power broker. Information is power. I, I think I know what that means. Cliff note, what does that mean? Well, you know, uh, too many times, and this comes from our, our experiences as coaches and mentors, we run into people who they, they understand information is power, but they're not willing to let that out. And so then you get an organization where people don't understand the why or the importance Love it. of something. Yeah. I thought that's and, where you were going with it. Yeah, for sure. Right? Yeah. Don't yeah, hold so, it close so. to your chest. Right. Share it. Be, be a power broker. Yeah. Teach someone to take your, basically teach someone to take your job, right? I'm going to show you the inside or not even that. It, it's that. And it's also, Hey, I want you to take this hill. Here's why here, come into my office and let me show you the big picture. Here's all the information, right? That's yeah. power. Yeah. I love it. Well, and, and, and you, you said something there is perfect. Train somebody to, to take your job. And, and that's exactly it. And, and that's the number one pushback I get on this one is, well, if I let all this go, then, then you know, somebody could replace me. Good. Good. Make yourself useless because you become more useful to the, inf- the organization that way. Exactly. I've worked myself out of seven jobs in the corporate arena. And every time I got more accountability, more responsibility, more money. Right. Yep. So, I mean, exactly. it's just like you, you make yourself useless. You become more yep. useful. Yeah, I love it. Love it. Uh, number six, train how you want to perform. Makes sense, right? It's like train how you want to fight, right? Mm-hmm. And play to your team's strengths. I love that, too, because I think too often as individuals and organizations, we try to fix our weaknesses. I, I think if you spend 80% of your time in your strength zone, in your lane, you're way better off than spending 80% trying to fix some weakness, right? Yes. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and that's the thing right there. And this is where I, I challenge, you know, I, I challenge leaders when we go through this one is, you know, a lot of people read that and, 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 and say, uh, they, they see it as make things easy. And, and that's really not it. You know, no. playing your team's strengths, you can still have difficult tasks for your team. The, the key to this is you want to make sure that you're stretching your team, not breaking your team. Yeah. And, and and that's a key difference because if you if you if you put somebody in a position to fail, okay. Now there are a lot of valuable lessons in failure, but there's no valuable lessons in intentionally setting somebody up to fail. Yeah, uh, that has such a big morale boost. But on the other hand, you don't want it always to be or a morale deficit, not boost. But you don't always want to be setting up meatballs that they can hit out of the park. You, you want them to have to work for it a little bit because if not, they get lazy and complacent, then they don't grow. Yeah. Play to your team. Um, sorry, that my dogs were barking. I don't know if, they, if you heard <laughs> that. Like an That's okay. I, I had a mower. You get dogs. We're, we're hitting the cycle. <laughs> yeah. Right um, yeah, well, it's the whole Pareto principle of that too, right? You know, 80% of your – you know, you're going to get uh, 80% of your – results from 20% of your high performers, right? And so that's all the more importance that you play in that strength zone, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, in 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 uh in the book Good to Great was it, he talks about it's uh it takes was I think it's four times the energy to go from uh uh from a, a weakness to mediocrity than it does to a strong suit to excellence. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I've I've seen that firsthand with teams where I spent an inordinate amount of time trying to get my, you know, C players into B and A territory and at the sacrifice of not putting love into my A's and B's and, 
and I lost my A and Bs, and my C never got to a B. Does that make sense? <laughs> right? Yeah. It, 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 so the movie Rudy. Right? Have you ever seen Rudy? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I I used to see that as such a big inspirational movie until I actually heard a uh, interview with Joe Montana. Uh, you know, he went to the University of Notre Dame, and, and somebody asked him about the the movie. And he's like, I don't get it. It's like, I don't understand why people love that movie so much. And it's like, really? Why? He's such an inspirational movie. He goes, Rudy is one of the biggest failure movies I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, okay. You're, you're talking about Rudy here. guy." But, but he made a valuable point. He says, imagine, he goes, you know, Rudy had like no natural talent for football. I give him credit for being so determined. But he was good at math. He was good at science. Imagine if he put that same level of determination towards the things he was good at versus the things he wanted to be good at. You know, what could he have accomplished with that same level of commitment? And I'm sitting here like, holy shit, he's right. That's a great point. You know, it's so true. I mean, it's a great inspirational story and he did what he did, but he's not a professional. You know what I mean? That was it. I mean, you're, yeah, that's great. Yeah. No, yeah, that's that goes to to knowing yourself, knowing what you are good at. It doesn't mean that you can't pursue and try to, you know, work on the weaknesses, right? But just flip it around, you know, fo- yeah. focus on the strengths, and and when you got some free time, spend twenty percent of your time trying to f- get better at whatever you're weak at, or augment. I think I'm a big fan of augmenting, surrounding myself yeah. with people who can augment my weaknesses. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. Very good. Okay, so play your team strengths. Number eight is um, define success, empower team members, achieve results. I think that speaks for itself, right? Anything you want to add to that that one? Well, no, I mean, the, the first part there, right? I mean, I think this is probably where that one falls apart the most is at the define success. We don't part. even know what it looks like, and we're already we're already six months into this project, and we don't even know what success looks like. Yeah, all the time. Right. Or worse— you have the person who understands so well what success looks like that they write a you know a thirty seven page step by step manual. Oh yeah, and and I mean I, I've literally received uh, this one organization I worked for. Every once in a while we would get these tech orders that come out for an update, and it always made me mad that the very first step was remove equipment from box. Like, how dumb do you think I am? And, yeah. and that's the risk you run when you get too detail oriented. So, you know, it goes back to the kind of the patent quote, right? Don't tell your people what to do. Tell them what yeah. needs done and let them dazzle you with your brilliance. I agree. I tell you, though, I, speaking, I did this so subtly. I got so sucked into it when I was working in the corporate arena. I did just that because I felt it wasn't that I didn't believe in my, I mean, ultimately, I guess I did, but I, I it came from a place I told myself that they're already burdened. I want to make this easy for them. <laughs> I don't even want to, ha- I mean, I said this, I don't even want to had, I, when I, and I created, I know kidding, created a binder with a checklist and I <laughs> said, Hey guys. And I incorporated it nationwide and it was an absolute flop. And then when I reevaluated and, and reorganized, I did a one page intent letter <laughs> Mm-hmm. And left it up to them, and it became a success. I mean, firsthand, I've seen that, uh, and, I, and that was, and you, I would have known better. I should have known better, but it, you get right. sucked into it because you think, you know, you're in the, you have all the information. You're in the command center. You know, he, here, do this. Take equipment right. out of the box, right? You don't have to do that, <laughs> right? Just tell right. them what you want. What, 
that's why I say instead of working the plan, work the outcome. That's what I like to say in that kind of area. Yeah, well, well, I like that. And, you know, the other thing is, is when you do that, when you get that detail oriented with it, all you get is the result you would have gotten if you had done it yourself. Exactly. And, and you lose that benefit of, of what, uh, you know, what the experts refer to as cognitive diversity. Yeah. And, and, and you lose that. How does my team see achieving this success? And because, you know, that's that's one of the powerful things behind it when, you know, you define success, empower team members, achieve results. If you truly empower your team member, team members, you, you've given them a clear de- definition of what success looks like. Well, in reality, that's kind of a minimum standard, right? Uh, I, I think it should success looks like this, but you let them come up with with the way to achieve it. And sometimes, oftentimes their final result using all of their, their different backgrounds, their different, uh, uh, their different entrance, their different strengths, how they view your definition of success is going to lead to a much better result than what you initially thought success was going to look like. If that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And I think that's where to me, I think the defining success has to be, what is it? What is the ultimate thing we're trying to accomplish here? What is the outcome we want to achieve? That was what success is. And then you also, by empowering, you've you've introduced a high level of accountability, something that's lacking in organizations. Mm -hmm. But when you do this, you automatically introduce a level of accountability, which is very powerful, right? Because people want, they know what they own. It's their plan. You've given it to them. Show me how you're going to do X, Y, and Z by this date and come back to me. You've just empowered and you've introduced a a level of accountability, which you want. And the buzzword right now is engagement, right? Yeah. I'm engaged. Who's, who are you going to be more engaged with somebody else's idea or your idea? Absolutely. And and by doing this, you make it their idea and their engagement is going to go through the roof. Cause now when, when you define success as saying increase sales by 5% by X, and then all of a sudden sales are up by 20%. They did that. Exactly. Yeah. I love it. I think that, that is a key. That's a key one. I, I think that's where I see the most weakness in organizations is just by that. They don't define the outcome they want to achieve, i.e. the success. They don't turn over the how to accomplishment to the, to the members, the people who are going to be doing the actual work. Yeah, it's, it, when we insert ourselves, we think, we think detail equals clarity. Detail does not equal clarity. In fact, I think detail is the enemy, to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about some of these great combat missions or even some of that. I mean, some of these executive orders, they're done on just a couple pages. You know? Right. Well, it, it, cause here's the problem, right? And this, this is where, where it really kicks in is, is uh, when, when that comes down, you know, there's that perceived authority, right. And depending right. on what type of leader you are, that perceived authority comes down as this is the way to do it. And yeah. now maybe you have people on your team that see a different way to do it, but they're not going to do it that way because they don't want to, you know, question and challenge your authority as the leader. Yeah. And, that, and it's imperative if you are that leader in that top level that it's issuing that, that you be open to, you can, I, I've seen this, particularly CEOs of organizations, entrepreneurial CEOs who've brought a business up from the very beginning. It was all them. It's very difficult for them to transition to this part of it because yeah. they, I say, you know, they feel like they they can't, you know, interject their tribal knowledge into this. You can, but you just need to make sure that, you know, cause there's a lot to be learned there. 
from someone who's been through it all, right? The general mm-hmm. who's been to Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan and led combat troops has a wealth of knowledge. But just because he has all that knowledge doesn't mean he has to put every aspect of the detail in the plan, right? He may right. say, I've thought about this. I think this is the best course, but ultimately this is what we want to accomplish. Let me know how you're going to do that. And then when you come back to me and I do have that tribal knowledge and you say, hey, sir, this is how we're going to do it. I may say, well, have you thought about this? Or no, I don't like that. Or have you thought about this? You know what I mean? And we can yeah. hash it out. So that's where that tribal transfer can happen. Well, yeah. I mean, and there, there's uh, two versions of the same quote. There was one by Eisenhower, but but I like Mike Tyson's version. This yeah. uh, is everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the, the face. face. Right. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's the same thing here. But by simply defining success, you give them kind of like uh, a set of rules, a set of boundaries to kind of play within. You, you don't give them a strict set of marching orders. You're going to be here. You're going to be there. And, and, you know, the, a great example of this is, you know, let's talk about the, the, the D-Day invasion, right? The, the, the one reason why the D-Day invasion was successful was because uh, the U.S. side and, and the allies, they defined what success was going to look like. Get up the cliff, take out the guns, however you need to. Well, on the opposite side, you know, the, the Germans, their leadership couldn't react because at this time was when Hitler was getting like super paranoid mm-hmm. and, and the panzer divisions couldn't mobilize without his Approval. express authority. That's right. So, so because he was that command and control type of, of leader at the time and his team couldn't react to the, the adaptive uh, allied invasion, that was the big reason why D-Day was a success was because of different leadership. That's style. right. D-Day wasn't won because of Eisenhower's great plan. In fact, the, the myth goes that once it was underway, Eisenhower pushed away from his desk and crumpled it up and said, it's all on them now. You know? Yeah. But, exactly. but what was clear was, like you said, the intent, the objective, the outcome we want to do. And then thousands on that, you know particularly in the first couple of days, thousands of little small unit leadership groups of four or five individuals going, wow, this wasn't in the plan. What do we do now? Well, we climbed the cliff. <laughs> I didn't know we were supposed to climb a cliff. Well, we got to knock out the gun and there's a cliff in our way, right? <laughs> so they climbed yeah. a cliff. And, and it directs, I mean, it directly relates to, to the corporate world. I was actually just reading an article uh, today. Um, they were talking about uh, how Blockbuster had the opportunity to buy yeah. Netflix at one point for $50 million. And, and, you know, think about that for a second. Had the opportunity to buy for, for $50 million. Uh, I mean, you, you couldn't buy, you know, 10%. I don't know what their actual value is right now. I just made that up uh, on the spot. But, you know, Netflix is much more valuable and Blockbuster's out of business. Right. And, and, and because their, their definition of what success was going to look like was so far removed from the brick and mortar store. That, that Blockbuster didn't, they, they weren't able to get their minds wrapped around it. They had a plan that had worked, was going to work, and there was no deviation from it. Yeah. And Netflix put them out of business. That's true. The outcome of success was too rigid. Right? Yeah. It was to continue what we've been doing. Yep. Interesting stuff. Man, wrapping up here, we got, we're about 40 or 46 minutes into this. There's so much good stuff, but uh, <laughs> creating an environment of success. Agreed. Number 10, look for opportunities and own the outcomes. 
and then stay technically and tactically relevant. Anything over those last three that really sticks out? Well, you know, it's, it's uh, number 10. That, that's the one, because whenever I'm presenting this, uh, this is probably the most controversial thing I say whenever we're talking about these, is teams succeed and leaders fail, right? And, and so that's what this is all about, is, is looking for opportunities for your team so you can play to their strengths. Uh, that all This is how these shields interlock. You're looking for opportunities for your team so you can play to their strengths. You've trained how you'd like to perform. You've taken the time to define success. Uh, you, you've done all. You've built relationships and looked out for your people because you so you know what those strengths are, right? But now you've defined this opportunity that you think plays into all those, and you've vastly misjudged it, right? Yeah. Or some circumstance beyond your control happens, and it just goes south quick, fast, and in a hurry. How do you react? Do do you blame your team? They didn't execute. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. Or do you own the outcomes? Because as the leader, all of that is your responsibility. And, and so when I say teams succeed, that includes you as the leader. You're part of the team. But when failure happens, you have to have the broad shoulders and be willing to own it and fix those mistakes moving forward, whatever they may be. So sure, you, you, put, you put somebody else in charge of this task. Okay, fine. You're giving them a growth opportunity. They still didn't fail. You misjudged their ability or you didn't give them the support that they needed. That's still your failure. Yep. And 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 the the story I tell with this one is is again, we go back to Gene Kranz and the Apollo 1 mission, right? Yep. When when the three astronauts burn up on the pad. Gene could have placed the the blame on that on on a million different people, but he gave that famous speech where he took the blame along with the rest of the team and gave them the orders to go back to their rooms and write tough and competent on their chalkboards. He, he owned that outcome. It was, it was a failure yep. on his part to make sure that everybody was staying on task and, and calling out failures that they saw pop up. So, so that's the one uh, that, that that I really do enjoy talking about because I get a lot of pushback on it and I love having those discussions. Yeah. I, I, that resonates with me. I, I talk about kind of the same, the language I use is, is accountability versus responsibility. They're kind of similar words, but I think they have differing meanings and I get a lot of pushback too, but it's the same concept. It's Jim Collins talks about it in good to great. It's like the window mirror theory, right? Is if you're mm-hmm. successful, you're looking out the mirror at the out at the window at your team, and if if you fail, you're looking in the mirror at yourself. That's a tough one from people, I, and I don't think you can call yourself a leader unless you do and adopt what you just said there, right? You have right. to. You you're accountable for the whole shooting match. I use analogies of flying planes, like when I flew Casey 130s in the Marine Corps, had a whole bunch of functional leadership responsibility in that plane, from a load master to a navigator to a flight engineer, first mech another co-pilot, and then me, the aircraft commander. At varying degrees of whatever mission we're doing, they all had functional leadership responsibilities. And when I had lost my internal navigation unit, this was Mm pre-GPS, we had two internal navigation units. One of them died, and one of them was drifting. It was unreliable. I had to rely on my navigator, who literally pulled out charts like Magellan and shot cell shots against celestial objects. I don't know how to do that. That's his responsibility. But if he failed in that responsibility and didn't 
get me to Hawaii, who's accountable for us ditching in the ocean? It's me. Yep. The one that signed for the aircraft. And a lot of people, like you said, they push back because they don't think, well, this navigator failed in his leadership responsibility because he was drunk, hung over from the night before, and he panicked. And he didn't know how to, you know, he forgot how to do a cell shot. Mm-hmm. Well, who's accountable for it? Yep. I am. I have to answer to the man if I survive that ditching. And he's like, well, why, you know, cause he's, then we'll start saying, well, why was he drunk? You know, what were you doing the night before? You know, why didn't you, why did you let him fly hungover? You know what I mean? It's right. it. Yeah. And, I get a lot of pushback because people think because if somebody fails in their functional leadership responsibility that you shouldn't take the blame for it, but leaders have to take accountability for that failure. Well, and, and, and this is what I tell folks, right? This is kind of what it boils down to is you want to take responsibility for it because then the, the, the outcome is on you, right? When, when you own it, you have the opportunity to take those corrective actions right away. You know, so in, in that instance, using your scenario, right? Yeah. If, 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 if that had happened and you go in and you're standing tall in the carpet and you, your, your one story is, well, hey, my navigator did this, he was drunk and, and all this. And they start asking all these questions. You're still responsible but now the outcome is going to be much, much worse, right? You may be looking at reduction in rank. You may be getting your license, your, your, your certifications yanked, all this good stuff. But if you walk in there and you stand up and you look your, your CEO in the face, be like, sir, this is what happened. It's my responsibility. These are the corrective actions that I've taken. This is never going to happen again. All right, make sure it doesn't. Yeah. And that's usually the end of it because you – you showed that even though this this thing happened, you have the 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 integrity and the fortitude to be able to handle that situation in the future without having to be handheld through it and waiting for an investigation and blah blah blah. Agreed. You took care of it every time, every time, a hundred percent. And there's been a handful in my career, both military and in in the professional corporate arena. There's been about five or six episodes where accountability and it was very painful to stand up every single time I saw it and some were with me and some were with people that I was with who, you know, other leaders that I've seen very difficult situations where it would be really easy to point the fingers to blame and sweep something under the rug or whatever. Every time that I saw somebody stand up and this includes myself when I've done it, only good things happened. Right. Not only did, did the leaders that I've worked for and including myself when I did it in the one instance where I did it, I got, I got even more responsibility and accountability. I didn't get less. I got more because nobody takes it. The, the, the fact that someone takes on – we see it all the time, right? The accountability yep. is so rare. But when you do it, great things only happen. And not only that, the people that you protect or shield – and again, we're assuming that people made honest mistakes. They didn't do something unethical, legal, or immoral – Right. An honest mistake was made and you do stand up and you take the accountability. You breed loyalty and a following that is unsurpassed. You cannot, exactly. even, you, you will have people that will follow you through the gates of hell. Yep. Yeah. hundred percent. Awesome stuff, man. Well, we're coming up on an hour. I guess we need to close this out. We could talk forever. This has been so much fun for me. It's always good to talk, not only to another leadership junkie, but someone that was in the Marine Corps, obviously, those are always going to be good conversations, or at least for me. I hope some people 
got some nuggets. There's been some great nuggets in here. How can people learn more about you, your podcast, your coaching, mentoring, consulting, all that? How can people, uh, this is your chance to plug your wares here, sir. Oh yeah, hundred percent. So appreciate the the opportunity. Uh, you know, the, the first one, the podcast, that's the easiest one. Just uh, the, the name of it is The Burden of Command. Uh, I'm on iTunes. I'm on all the, the, the side ones, Stitchers, iHeartRadio and all that. But iTunes is where most people get their stuff. Just The Burden of Command. Uh, I'm probably about 20 or so episodes in. I've got a lot of great uh, interviews. Uh, we'll have yours probably up by the time this one airs as well. Um, as far as finding the, the coaching, mentoring and all that. Um, so it's just leadership phalanx. And I know phalanx is an old word, so I'll spell it P-H-A-L-A-N-X, leadershipphalanx.com. Uh, and there you'll see some of the things that we do. Uh, you know, what sets us apart is a lot of people talk about diversity and inclusion or leadership. We kind of talk about both. We, we really tie in the importance of diversity and inclusion uh, with good leadership and strong teams and unit cohesion and all of those great things that organizations are looking for, that when you have good, strong leadership uh, and, and you have a diversity, and when we talk diversity, it's not just age, race, sex, religion, those protected classes like a lot of people think. We talk of diversity in all of its forms. And, and a big one of those is you know, cognitive diversity and diversity of backgrounds. Uh, so that's what we do with our, our leadership style is we hit leadership and diversity and inclusion. So leadershipphalanx.com. Uh, you can reach out to me directly at Earl, E-A-R-L, at leadershipphalanx.com. And, and those are the easiest ways to get a hold of me. I've got, you know, some social media channels. If you look up Earl Breon, B-R-E-O-N. There's not a whole lot of those running around. You're probably finding me on those social media networks. Earl, it's great. I'll have links to all this on the post on doseofleadership.com. Check out his podcast, all your listeners. It's real easy to subscribe, rate, and review his, The Burden of Command. Um, it's, it's, on all, it's on all of them, right? Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, yep. Podbean. Yep. Uh, so yeah, Podbean's who I host with, and I just got on iHeartRadio a couple of weeks ago. So uh, I think I'm on all of them now. Very good. Check yep. it out, folks. If, again, a great free resource to add uh, if you're a Dose of Leadership fan. Just go ahead and subscribe to Earl's. Um, you can tell from this hour-long packed conversation that we share a lot of the same beliefs. Um, you're going to get a lot of the same great nuggets on his show as well with all his guests. And I'm so glad that he's part of the Dose Leadership Tribe and, and carrying the leadership flag forward with a whole different uh, concept and brand. And, and I wish you the best of success, sir. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, not a problem. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. And uh, uh, yeah, just keep doing great things and Semper Fi. Semper Fi. Hey, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Dose of Leadership. I do appreciate your support. If you could do a couple things for me, go subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast app. Go to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. And if you could do that for me, I would truly appreciate it. Also, if you're interested in working with me, if you're interested in some team leadership training, go to doseofleadership.com and check out Legacy Leader Blueprint. I understand how difficult it can be to get effective leadership training for your team. It never seems like you have the time or the budget. My course, Legacy Leader Blueprint, solves that problem. Quality leadership training that doesn't disrupt your busy schedule or break your budget. 
20 high impact videos and six hours of live group coaching with me that will allow you and your team to become true leaders of influence. I will teach you how to defeat mediocrity and stagnation, create high impact cultures of initiative, and build empowered teams with high degrees of trust. Go check out doseofleadership.com, click on Legacy Leader Blueprint, and enroll your team today. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.